It's been quite a year, hasn't it? I'll say. First Brexit, then Trump. I mean, I keep waking up to some news alert that I was not expecting. Yeah, but, you know, this global whirlwind, this political maelstrom that we're all in, doesn't seem to be slowing down in any way. Yeah, I think we better get ready for more to come in 2017. Welcome to The Anthill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Gemma Ware. And I'm Annabelle Bly. So, in light of everything that's been going on in 2016, in this episode we'll be asking some academics to give us their take on the big themes that have emerged this year and take a look at what might happen next in 2017. We'll talk about what lies in store for Europe next year. I think um, the European Union now really does have to pull itself together or, or risk falling apart. We'll also talk about our responsibility as consumers of the media. We can do a lot about fake news by checking it out. I mean, a lot of this comes back down to us. And about what we can do to hold our leaders to account in 2017. You know, if we think about what we've got to do better for 2017, I think one of the key things we've all got to start doing, and I speak from a a politics background, is paying more attention. But first... I'm going to try and explain a concept that has taken a bit of a beating this year, and that's globalisation. 2016 saw anti-establishment nationalist parties around the world come into power. Britain voted to take back control and leave the European Union. Americans voted for Donald Trump, who promised to make America great again. And it's a trend that looks set to continue in 2017. One of the frontrunners in the French elections is the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen. And support in Italy is rising for the anti-Euro five-star movement led by Beppe Grillo. At heart, these political movements represent a backlash against the dominant economic force of our times, globalisation. The last 20 years have seen an acceleration of global trade, with money, people and just all this stuff easily transported around the world at breakneck pace. To understand the evolution of globalisation and attitudes towards it, I spoke with Steve Keane, an economist at Kingston University in London. He explained how the idea of free trade took hold in the early 19th century, thanks to a political economist called David Ricardo. So the argument was first put in the technical sense by David Ricardo, and he was writing in the early 1800s. And at that stage, the main rival that England faced was Portugal. And he was facing people in Parliament and his own intellectual circle saying, well, if we open up trade with Portugal, which would be by abolishing what were called the Corn Laws then, Portugal's better than us at everything. Uh, therefore, we'll lose out. Industry will go into decline. But Ricardo's argument was a very simple one. Imagine it takes 120 men to make a certain quantity of, of wine in England and it takes uh, 90 men to make a certain quantity of cloth. And then in Portugal, it takes only... Uh, Uh, 80 men to make that same quantity of cloth and, say, 70 to make the quantity of wine. So Portugal's more efficient at both of those industries. What Ricardo argued was that if if England specialised just in producing cloth and Portugal specialised just in producing wine, then you'd get higher efficiency out of Portugal, the best efficiency you could out of England. There'd be more of both wine and cloth and you could trade the excess and everybody benefits. Now, that really has become the one trick pony of economic theory ever since. It's about how if you shuffle things around you'll improve specialisation. So that's the argument in favour of it at an intellectual level. So the idea was that this combination of countries specialising in one type of good or service and trading freely with others doing the same would increase productivity and lower costs for all countries involved. 
The logic was that so long as the gains produced from this were shared out evenly, everyone would benefit. But this hasn't happened. As Steve explained, there have been winners and losers from globalization as manufacturing has been moved around the world. What's actually going on in that is you have, if you imagine two economies which are sailing along quite nicely, like what's called golden age stage of growth, uh, and you then relocate production from that one of those countries to a third world country and export back, the workers in the first world country lose their jobs. The workers in the third world country get a job, but they get much lower salaries. Uh, there's a profit margin shared between the, the capitalists in both countries. You definitely get gains in terms of uh, distribution of income from the workers to the capitalists in both countries. The workers in the third world definitely gain, which is one reason you see such support for globalization in China and most of, uh, most of Asia. But the workers in the first world lose their jobs, and the argument that they can find other work to do assumes full employment, assumes there are actually positions for them to go to. Now, the reality is that hasn't been the case. And Joe Stiglitz came out saying this in, back in the early 2000s with a wonderful book called Globalization and Its Discontents. So the gain is it's a, it's a, it ends up being a class distribution of income from workers in the first world to workers in, and capitalists in the third world and capitalists in the first world with the double whammy, of course, you've reduced aggregate demand back in the, in the, in the source country. For many economists, the solution is to find a better way of redistributing the gains from globalization but few have come up with a good way of doing so, and Steve is critical of the idea. The reason we're seeing the revolt against globalisation beginning effectively in the working class areas of the first world is because they have been screwed by this. No two ways about it. And all the economic talk about, oh, if we'd shared the gains from trade more fairly, I mean, the gains from trade, their gains exist from in, in investment. That's where the gains come from, investment and innovation. If this is happening, then what's occurring back in America is they're not doing that investment, they're not doing that innovation. So you don't get the actual in improvement in technology and knowledge. What you get at the high level, so you know, the, the Silicon Valley workers do very nicely because they're the ones who actually design the products in the, in the first place. But the production lines we used to have there for working class labor and so on disappears. So there's a lot of frustration building up out of this and it comes back to the essential question of what's an economy for? And we, we, we've forgotten that it, it, it's, it's, it, economy has to provide a living for the majority of the people inside it or if it doesn't you get what we used to call peasant revolts. Under the feudal system we're now getting worker revolts under capitalism and it's worker revolts like the ones that elected Donald Trump that have looking like Marine Le Pen might be the winner in France that are going to give Villa Beppo Grillo control in Italy. Uh, all this sort of stuff is a, is a legitimate revolt, which my profession, and I can tell I'm a rebel in my own profession, is trying to delegitimize by saying, oh, there are gains, we just could have shared them more fairly. Let's just keep on doing all this stuff and share them more fairly. That's how they got realistic. So what exactly does 2017 have in store? To find out how global trade might change as a result of Brexit and Trump, I spoke with Maria Garcia, a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Bath. Despite Donald Trump's isolationist rhetoric, she doesn't think his presidency will see the US close its doors to trade anytime soon. On the one hand, Donald Trump has won an election on a very strong narrative against certain aspects of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, against greater openness to products being produced in developing countries. On the other hand, he himself is a businessman. He is filling up his cabinet with leaders from business and from industry, in a sense, these are the people who have benefited from globalization, from breaking down barriers to trade and services globally. Trump himself 
His own business empire has outlets and golf courses and hotels across the world. So I think there is going to be an interesting dichotomy there. When he becomes president, Donald Trump will have a huge constituency of people in the US who have benefited from globalization to contend with. One thing he has made clear is that he will not sign the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, trade agreement. This is a trade deal that took seven years to negotiate and involves 12 countries, including Japan, Australia and Mexico. Instead, Trump has mentioned moving toward a more bilateral approach to trade. By negotiating individually with each country, the United States has a lot more power and a lot more say in what goes into the agreement, because they can also play countries off each other either purposefully or as a byproduct of the individual negotiations. If you are, say, Peru, and you see that the country next to you, Colombia, is negotiating a trade deal with the United States, and they're likely to be exporting similar products as you are, so avocados, for instance. So you think, you know, their avocados are going to now be cheaper in the United States because they will negotiate a reduced tariff. So the idea is that the Peruvian avocado farmers will then lobby their government and demand the government also enter into negotiations with the United States so that they have the same level of access and are not worse off than they were previously vis-a-vis Colombia. That's the idea of a domino effect taking place. So 2017 could see the US strengthening its trade position. Europe, meanwhile, is seeing a different kind of shift in its approach to trade. This was sparked by criticism to its now-stalled trade deal with the US, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, or TTIP. The new European Union trade policy, the trade for all policy, is quite striking in its wording, in, in the sense that it does not really read like a trade policy. It talks a lot about human rights, about the environment, about social rights. It's really taking on board a lot of the criticisms that civil society raised against the now-stalled negotiations of a trade agreement with the United States. So it is really trying to engage with those concerns about secrecy of negotiations with disregard for labor standards and all of these things. The extent to which these principles will inform negotiations in 2017 and trump the interest of big business remains to be seen. But this new approach to trade at least offers hope of a brighter future. For economist Steve Keen, governments would be better off abandoning their obsession with free trade. Instead, they should focus on developing their industrial policies. He's not calling for closed borders and a return to tariffs, but he argues an economy will do better if it develops its own industries. So South Korea is a classic instance on that front, and so is Japan. Uh, When you look at what they actually did, and a guy called Danny Roddick has done a lot of good work on this front, what they did initially uh, was go against the whole argument for free trade, they protected their own industries, but they protected them under the duress so that protection would drop over time. They had to improve their products, they had to improve their efficiency. And so if you think of what Japanese, I'm old enough to know what Japanese cars looked like in the 1950s, 1960s, and they were jokes. You would never buy one unless you would just simply try to save money. Of course, fast forward 40 years, Japanese cars are high quality and they're one of the elite brands. And the same thing applied with South Korea as well. So they start off Uh, protecting an industry to some degree, various ways, local uh, purchase advantages rather than just tariffs, but they force it to industrialise and develop. Now, what happens, of course, over time is because they're improving efficiency and improving the product, we all benefit from that, more so than we would benefit from dropping old trade barriers on one day and seeing everything reshuffle itself around the planet. Whether or not politicians in the US or Europe will heed Steve's advice is another thing entirely. But after a year of so much upheaval, 
This could be as good a time as any to change tack. So while economists and trade negotiators have all that to look forward to in 2017, some big court cases and crucial elections are looming on the horizon for our political leaders. At some point in January, the UK Supreme Court will rule on who has the right to trigger the Brexit process, either the government or parliament. Meanwhile, the rest of Europe will be dealing with those Brexit negotiations at the same time as preparing for two key elections in France and Germany. Our politics editor Laura Hood has pulled together a panel of experts to discuss how both our leaders and we as citizens can move on from the shocks of 2016 and embrace the year ahead. We, the people of the Western world, left and right, old and young, can hardly be said to have showered ourselves in glory over the past 12 months. We've been divided by fundamental questions about our values, and we have thrown ill-tempered tweets around like they're going out of fashion. And whether we admit it or not, we seem to have become alarmingly intolerant of each other's views. International leaders have been tested in their ability to respond to the needs and desires of their citizens, and have been found desperately wanting. Populist antagonisers have led divisive campaigns to achieve progress, often resorting to the most underhand tactics to appeal to the least noble tendencies of their followers. And many voters are ending this year feeling as though they no longer understand the people with whom they share their everyday lives. How did we come to be so disjointed in 2016? And what can we do to recover? Joining me in the studio here in London are Patricia Hogwood, Reader in European Politics at the University of Westminster, and Jane Singer, Professor of Innovation Journalism at City University of London. Joining us down the line is Andy Price, Head of Politics at Sheffield Hallam University. Thank you all for volunteering to sort the world out with me. Um, (laughs) I want to start by talking about what 2017 has in store. Um, Of course, January will see Donald Trump take office in the US. But what are the other pressure points that we can expect, Uh, Patricia? Well, I think the pressure points for the European Union are going to come um, between spring and summer 2017. The EU's informal leadership alliances are really going to have to be redrawn um, because of the shake-up of the member states' top leadership. Um, We have a a series of really important elections and political decisions um, either just made or coming up. President Hollande of France has indicated that he will not stand again for president. That leaves the field open to the right or the far right. Um, Spain's minority government is really only tolerated because uh, the option to that government was a third general election in the course of one year, which would have been extremely damaging for the legitimacy of Spanish state. Really, of the informal leadership group in the EU, only Angela Merkel has a chance of remaining in post uh, into 2017. She will be fighting as lead candidate for her Christian Democratic Party in the 2017 um, German federal elections. So only she will remain, possibly, This means that the informal cadre that has helped to um, lead the member states in the European Union will be scattered and will have to be reformed. Um, The other pressure point that would fall between spring and summer 2017 is possibly um, the Brexit process. What do you feel current leaders need to do to respond to um, the kind of sentiments that have been expressed by voters in 2016? In the short term, they really need to put the differences aside. 
um, because the European Union is facing multiple crises now. If you'd asked me um, after the Brexit vote, will this destabilize the European Union, I would have said no. But um, given the subsequent developments, I think um, the European Union now really does have to pull itself together or, or risk falling apart. So the first thing they have to do is talk to one another and, and they have to put some considerable differences aside. They need to face key challenges in the European Union, including um, a good honest look at whether austerity politics is working in the Eurozone. They have to make an arrangement for incoming asylum seekers whereby all of the member states take on asylum seekers according to their resources, which isn't happening at the moment. They've got a number of neighbourhood challenges in um, very serious ones, including how to deal with um, EU-Russian relations, how to deal with Turkey. And it looks like um, Turkey's bid for European membership is really at an end now. And of course, they've got all the problems in the Middle East. So they, they really do have to pull together at this time and work not only with one another, but also with the leadership of the institutions of the European Union. There has been uh, an emerging rift between some of the member state leaders and some of them leaders of the European Union institutions. That has to be mended. I presume you're talking about Donald Tusk, um, Jean-Claude Juncker. Indeed. They've not had a great year um, in 2016. What do you think they need to do uh, in 2017 to uh, reignite uh, passion for the European project? They are doing quite a lot behind the scenes as part of their regular work. There's, there's another problem I should have mentioned, really, a problem with emerging authoritarianism in some of the um, member states, particularly the Central and Eastern European member states. Uh, this really does threaten the core identity of the European Union. I think uh, Jean-Claude Juncker and Donald Tusk and others really need to make a stronger political statement about what the EU really stands for in the future and, and, and what the benefits of the European Union are. Jane, the, the media coverage around some of these issues reflects many of the tensions of 2016. It's been quite extreme and uncompromising. Do you have any thoughts on how we can consume that media in a more sensible way, um, maybe in a way that doesn't further fuel the problem? I, I mean, I think that what we see in the media is a um, replication or reflection, uh, a different um, form of what we see in the electorate. I mean, it's becoming increasingly bifurcated. And I think not just bifurcated in terms of where they stand on the issues, uh, the different media outlets in the UK, but also how they talk about them. Um, and I think that's a, um, I mean, I think one of the things that we want to talk about today is how we can make a, make a better 2017 than, than 2016 was. And I, and I think that's a, that is in some ways an impediment. I think that increasingly, the media are are facilitating the ability of people to um, reinforce their own um, not just information but their own views and and not really um, even acknowledge any others and I, we definitely see that in the media. If I can come back to Jane on that, um, interestingly, you know, if we think about what we've got to do better for 2017, I, I, I think one of the key things we've all got to start doing, and I speak from a from a politics background. Mm -hmm is paying more attention mm. and paying attention to things like where the media has gone in this country, where the mainstream media has gone. And, you know, the response to the uh, Court of Appeal decision is a great indication of that. Let's, let's be honest here. Some of the responses from places like the Daily Mail and the Express were unacceptable to a functioning, 
solid uh, democracy. They were unacceptable mm-hmm. responses, and we've kind of lost sight of that in the past. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately and discussing this with, with other people lately, that perhaps in 2017, one of the big new concepts that we'll be dealing with is, is this idea that we shouldn't normalize Donald Trump in the US, mm. that we shouldn't normalize that kind of approach to politics. Well, if that's the case, I think in the UK, we might have to think about denormalizing some of the problematic aspects of our political debate. And, and part of that might be the media reaction to the court case and similar media responses to issues that, that we that confront us in 2017. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important. But I would say that really the only people who can do that are the people. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it, it's the public, it's the readers. You know, we have to vote with our, um, you know, our pence and our, and our uh, fingers where we click, uh, because particularly the media that you mentioned, but to some extent all media are going to respond to what's drawing a reaction from th- their audience. I mean, it can't be the government coming in and saying, you're going to do this or that. And I, and I, I personally also think it's problematic to have regulators, and I'm making little air quotes that you can't see um, <laughs> over the podcast, um, come in and do it as well. I, I think that, you know, we as a public have to um, kind of step up and, and say what kind of media we want, just as we uh, step up and say what kind of politics we want. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's absolutely true. I think a big part of, of this comes down to our social media um, consumption mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of uh, the US election. There was a lot of talk firstly about the issue of fake news, but also this idea that we are tailoring our feeds in our in our Twitter accounts and our Facebook accounts and, and on Snapchat even to uh, filter out people whose views uh, we don't agree with. I personally saw a lot of people on my Facebook feeds announcing that they would be unfriending people who voted for Donald Trump. And I thought, well... That's not really going to help the situation. <laughs> How do we... Tempting, though, isn't it? <laughs> in 2017, do we have to sort of accept that our feeds need to be filled with people that we don't agree with in the interests of um, being awake to different views? Well, that's a, a really interesting um thing that's going on with social media and the and the extent to which the information that we get is tailored partly by us and and partly by um uh, algorithms and and various other things we could talk about but i want to just real quickly and we can talk more about that but i, I want to come back to the idea that we can't do anything about fake news i actually think we can do a lot about fake news by checking it out i mean a lot of this comes back down to us right. We we can learn an awful lot, and we can we can find out what's fake if we work at it just a little bit, mm-hmm. and refrain from you know passing things on through social media if, before we've done that. Um, there's a one of the positive things to happen in 2016, and uh, actually over the past couple of years has been kind of an explosion in what are called fact checkers. So there's there are organizations, most of them either associated with or backed by media organizations, but basically they're people who do journalistic kinds of things, and they they are able to provide in a very accessible and sometimes entertaining way um, assessments of what is true and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but how many, who, who goes and looks at fact checkers? <laughs> Probably um, those of us um, here and, and, and perhaps listening to the podcast. But I think but they're there mm-hmm. um, and more people can do that. So, so I think then, there is some ability for us as people to hold the media to account, but but not in not necessarily in the way we think of that. Um, hold the social media to account. Hold the people who are trying to stir up hate through the media to account. We can do that. We mm. just have yep. to do it. 
It goes further than that, doesn't it, Jane? It, mm. goes, it goes back further than social media. Oh, and absolutely. If we, return to the, if we return to the Brexit case, yeah. we know that a large number of people, and this isn't a criticism, it's just that it was our, it's been our approach towards the European Union for many years, a large number of people who were voting in the referendum don't really understand what the European Union is. Yes, and that's I mean. because, you know, it's a, it's the failure of politicians as well as people that no mm-hmm. one's really explained the social case for the European Union in Britain for many years. So we've got a much... Uh, older problem really and it's about engagement with politics we know that the, the numbers show us over uh, recent decades that engagement with politics is in decline it's in free fall in places like the uk and there's in a sense it goes back to your point jane about the people holding the media to account we have to hold our political system to account mm-hmm. the only way we do that mm-hmm. is actually by giving it a little more of our attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very important what you said about fact-checking. You know, maybe one of our tasks is to popularise fact-checking. Um, it, for, because for me, um, Andy's point about the polarisation of political debates and, um, you know, the, the, the normalisation of, of um, rhetoric that would have been considered unacceptable even a few years ago, that's gone hand-in-hand hand with the mainstreaming of populism, mm-hmm. in, um, certainly in Europe. And, and we we see we see it in almost every country. And you know, one of the challenges facing political leaders in these upcoming elections is to try and keep the populist threat in check. I really think the French presidential elections might set the parameters for um, a pendulum swing back to the right. You know, we've been seeing um, this pendulum swing uh, away from social democratic solutions to governance um, through more centre right and now possibly. Um, right-wing solutions. That's an excellent point, isn't it, actually? The one thing we should say here, and we, should, we can say this total, as objectively as we can, whether we, mm-hmm. we ourselves are on the left or on the right, we know that over the last few decades of neoliberalism, the left has moved increasingly towards the centre. Indeed. Across the West, and that partly explains why the left across the West, as we traditionally understood it, is is in decline. It's, you know, mm-hmm. that itself is falling apart. The old locus of progressive politics has seen to move towards the centre and the right over the last three decades across the West. And we see it in the UK, the US, in other parts of Europe. What then do we do? You know, I see recently Nick Clegg and a few Mm. other politicians calling for a new progressive alliance in the UK. Mm. And in the way, we need something to replace the old traditional labour movements. We need another new progressive force. And that, of course, is feeding into the, the events we're talking about today. So is that an opportunity for uh, 2017? Is that something that we could encourage uh, among our leaders? I think so. I think so. But it will take one thing that we've not seen for a long time as well, uh, Laura, and it will take bravery. <laughs> Real bravery among yeah. our politicians. You know, uh, uh, can any of us remember the last time a British politician stood up and made the progressive case for the European Union? People are scared around the issue mm-hmm. of sovereignty and 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 all the other things that 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 make that fire people up in Britain around migration and controlling borders, we we are in desperate need of politicians to be brave, stand up and say, okay, look, this is what the European Union does. This is what it given us and this is the problem with the old. I absolutely agree. I think that's a really important point. And I think one of the things that we're also seeing in this rise of populism is a is a real. A disappointment that our leaders in various spheres haven't done um, what Andy is um, calling on them to do, but also we've lost trust in them to do what we think they should be doing across the board. And I think we see a, a huge loss of trust in our 
political leadership, in our media, um, in our, it, you know, to some extent in academia. I mean, we certainly saw in the um, in the Trump election, there was this complete writing off of people seen to be um, members of what might be called an elite society. And, and to some extent, one would, you know, to some extent that's healthy. But to another extent, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get that back once it's lost. And I think that it's kind of lost at the moment. Mm. So. We had the same happening in yeah, the UK with absolutely. the rejection of experts. Absolutely. Of, well, we came right out and, and said that, um, although I, I think he was perhaps taken a little bit out of context. But but yes, I mean, I think we absolutely saw that. People with Brexit didn't know who to believe, and so they believed kind of what their gut was telling them in the first place. Mm. Um, we were talking about bravery uh, among politicians a moment ago. I wonder if we could sort of turn that lens onto the British government as it um, heads towards Brexit negotiations. And depending on what happens in the Supreme Court, the aim is to begin Brexit negotiations in March. What does the British government need to do to uh, reassure people who voted to remain in the European Union that they are not being forgotten um, and that their interests are not being neglected, even if they lost the referendum? Andy, perhaps that's one for you. Okay, yeah. Well, the first thing they should do is actually what the rest of the political system seems to have been asking them to do since the 23rd of June, and that's actually give some more detail. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that certainly isn't brave, despite the being portrayed as, as such, is this idea of, of them, you know, keeping their cards close to their chest because they don't want to ruin negotiations. That really doesn't wash. Actually, that doesn't, you know, doesn't give anybody any reassurance, even people who voted for leave. So if they really want to reach out and, and, and deal with some of the divisions that we've already talked about, we know how divided Britain now is amongst leave, leavers and remainers. And we know the, the nature of that, of that debate is, is really quite problematic and getting more so, it seems. So, you know, the brave thing for the government to do now and the brave thing for Brexiteers in general to do now is actually just start having a full and frank an open conversation, you know, with the one eye on negotiations, but a full and frank conversation with people in Britain about what this means. And that's, you know, the real brave element of that would be for the people who are in favour of Brexit, for the government to say, OK, look, people, we voted for this. Here's what's going to happen. But you should all know that here's some of the more difficult things that are going to happen, too. Here's the positives. Here's what we argued we could do. But some of the things we've said, some of the things we want, we might not be able to achieve. We know that's the nature of politics. Mm -hmm. And it seems that since the debate, that, that kind of idea of saying, OK, look, this is politics. We voted one way, but we can't have it all our own way has disappeared from the from the from the discussions and that now would be the brave thing to do i think i think that is a problem andy because um the the tone of the brexit um the leave campaign was that we're doing this so that we can get all our own way mm -hmm. um you know there the, the, there's possibly been some um rather false expectations laid by them the leave campaign does that mean there's a role for people who voted for brexit in sort of detoxifying the discussion mm. in 2017 but you know, it's a very good point. You know, the Leave campaign was based on on some rather outlandish promises, perhaps, yeah. you know, some, some things that can't be delivered. But one thing we should remember, Theresa May wasn't involved in the Leave mm. campaign, and her government was not elected on a Brexit mandate. In a way, the Prime Minister is in a perfect position to actually say, OK, yeah, the referendum's happened. As you know, we, some of us weren't on the, on the Leave campaign. We're now in charge. 
here's what we need to really address and we need to address that some of the things that were promised are going to be difficult to achieve and that's you know that's one of the worrying things about about the May government is that that, they, yeah. that, that kind of concession doesn't seem to be mm. forthcoming. Is there equally, though, a role for Remainers to sort of resist the temptation to leap on every failure? Um, would that help if in, in sort of having a more measured discussion if we stopped sort of looking for um, chinks in the Brexit armour? Um, well, that's, that's a good question on the on the on the Remainers, but I mean, Remainers do have some. You know, if we talked earlier about the idea of us being more engaged in in uh, politics and more informed, when we see the examples of politicians misleading people, and we know that it happened at a couple of times in the referendum campaign, then we do have to call it out. I think it's fine to call it out, but you are right in another sense that the narrative overall. I mean, it's so painful for, for Remainers. We know that, don't we? The idea of leaving the European Union, the idea of, of many people had plans that their children would travel around the European Union as freely as they did, all of these kind of things. There is a lot of pain there, but, but you're right. There needs to come a point where they say, where Remainers concede that they too can't get everything they want, just like the Leavers can't. The Remainers can't have everything they want after a democratic vote like this. So they have to say, okay, yeah. We too will make concessions here, but we will always still make the case for A, the European Union, and B, uh, for, for the fact that there was some misleading um, campaigning. I think that also just takes us back to um, this discussion we were having about social media, which I sort of swerved you off from. Um, <laughs> this idea of, of us diversifying our, um, our feeds, of embracing um, opinions that are different to our own. How can we do a bit more of that in 2017? Well, it's an important issue. I'm actually not sure that social media is the best way to diversify our views. Well, particularly Facebook. So probably friends with other people who at some level have a, have a like, um, view of the world to us or have similar experiences because those are the people that we know and have fr are friends with. Um, but there is an enormous opportunity to diversify our media mix. Just in general, we look at, um, what um, particularly in the UK, where there's where the, it's clear <laughs> it's clear where different uh, media outlets are coming from, but also in the US, I, I you know most people I know never watch Fox News. <laughs> Tells you where I'm coming from, um, and, and we need to do that. I mean, we need to watch it not just um, in terms of oh, gotcha, there's another stupid thing that they said, um, but to watch it to understand what they're saying and to understand the the perspective that. That, that, that their audience is getting and is coming from. And so I think there's many opportunities to do that. There's, there's actually quite a lot of very good liberal and also very good conservative, um, magazines and publications in the U.S. that we, that are accessible to us. And I think, you know, those are well-informed views that we may not disagree with, but they're well-informed views and we should understand what they are and, and, um, and learn from them. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think we've covered um, quite a lot of ground here. I feel a bit more optimistic about 2017 <laughs> than I did about 2016. I wondered if you could all perhaps just give me one piece of advice that I can apply <laughs> to my daily life tomorrow about how I, as a citizen, uh, or indeed someone else as a, a leader, can uh, make 2017 a nicer place to be than 2016. Patricia? Well, I would say um, when you talk about contentious issues, make it constructive. Andy? Yeah, I think that's a great point, isn't it? Because that's the other thing that I was just thinking when we were talking about the, the, the Brexit campaign. We don't ever want to stop disagreeing with each other uh, because that's the nature of democratic politics. But it's just about, you know, it's about how we do it. It's not 
we can disagree with each other and it not be necessarily the end of the world, you know, it not be such a huge conflict. So I think that's absolutely right. Um, my advice would be, on in terms of, of Brexit, it's quite an old-fashioned media advice. My advice would be, pick up a book or a chapter of a book and just read uh, as, as much as you can about the history of the European Union, what it's for. Now, I know most of us have, have some idea of it, but we should always remind ourselves of the, the genesis of the European Union in the conflict of the middle of the 20th century. And the more we remind ourselves of that, I think, I think the better. And Jane? I think that uh, one thing we might all be able to do and and it would be beneficial is to try to avoid stereotyping each other. I think we've we've certainly seen that in Brexit. We've certainly seen that in the in the US vote. There's a great tendency to say um the people who voted differently than I did are just wrong and they voted that way because they are X, Y, and Z, and I, that's that's just not at all helpful. Um, I think we need to, um, as I'm agreeing with my colleagues, I think we need to do a better job trying to understand each other and to move forward from there. Thank you very much, Jane Singer. Thank you. Thanks to you, Patricia Hogwood. Thank you. And thanks for joining us down the line, Andy Price. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Happy New Year, everyone. And with that, it's time for us to say our goodbyes to 2016. Thanks for listening in to The Ant Hill this year. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have enjoyed talking to so many brilliant academics. Do please tell your friends about us, and if you can, please tell us what you think about the show by giving us a review on whichever platform you use to download your podcasts. A big thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us this episode, and to the Journalism Department at City University in London for letting us use their studios. Don't forget that The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We're a charity funded by UK universities and research bodies. Do check us out at theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>